God save the king. But not the Tsar. Why is Putin's Russia not quite a monarchy, even though it often does feel like one? I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. Hello, and let me start with, well, a vote of thanks to you, my noble listeners, just heard that this podcast has just topped the 1 million downloads, 1 million listens. And given that, well, this is, this is episode 99, so we're just shy of 100. But nonetheless, that, well, for me, that's really quite touching, quite... I know we're meant to say things like humbling, but uh, no, no, I'm, I'm exceedingly pleased about that. This is the thing about podcasts. To a large extent, you send them out into the void... And beyond the most basic of of data analytics, you don't really know where and when they're actually finding a berth. So that was wonderful to hear. So as I say, thank you very much indeed. Anyway, look, I feel that I very much of late, for obvious reasons, been talking about quite sort of detailed issues of the moment, which largely tends to in direct or indirect ways mean the war in Ukraine. So what I wanted to do first, although in the second part I will quickly do a roundup of recent events, particularly including drones, car bombs and mercenaries, but given that this is, after all, the weekend of the coronation of King Charles III here in Britain, I thought what I would do is actually look at this whole issue of Tsar Vladimir. It's an easy conceit, and I've used it a lot myself, as a kind of a journalistic convention to call him a czar, to reflect his autocratic power, the increasing authoritarianism of his system, the diminishing scope for any kind of genuine popular participation and so forth. But as I said, perhaps it's worth just drilling down a little bit more and thinking about, in some ways, the particular challenges that this increasingly monarchical dimension of Putin's political system mean, and what they can perhaps tell us about the longer-term trajectory, insofar as this system has a long-term trajectory. I continue to hope that it is medium-term at best. And let's start with the most obvious one, the personalization of power. Of course, that's what happens, and you you don't have to be a king to have a very personalistic political system. But the thing is, I think, what we can see is the degree to which actually Putin has become more and more personalistic over time. More and more authority is vested in the body of a ruler who is also increasingly absent, and I'll come to that later, but nonetheless all-encompassing. There is nothing that is beyond his remit. There are no other figures who are really significant. Yes, there is a prime minister. Yes, there are various ministers and such like. But they are all but shadows and extensions of his will. I can't help but keep going back to the Lord of the Rings parallel. They are the Ringwraiths, the Nazgul. 
Once mighty mortal human kings, now transformed into these vengeful and vindictive wraiths that are just extensions of the Dark Lord Sauron's will. And again, continuing that particular metaphor, one of the things that comes out in Lord of the Rings is the impact of the Eye of Sauron. That you have this extraordinary, powerful, mythic creature now just simply a disembodied spirit from his home in the land of Mordor. And when he focuses on a particular battlefield, a particular problem, a particular target, then whatever it is that is within the, the reach of the eye of Sauron, you know, there he can be exceedingly powerful, he can bend his will, he can make extraordinary things happen. But the point is, he has but one eye, one focus for his efforts. And wherever the eye is not, there everything is much less controlled, much more subject to other people's stratagems, including a couple of hobbits humping their way across the uh, wastes of Mordor. And I think this is one of the key problems, is that you create a system which depends on the intervention of one man whether it's to resolve the elite conflicts that to a considerable extent are created precisely by the way this system was designed to rely on divide and rule to keep the elite in check or whether it's obviously running a war but in, in that respect the, the, the personalization of power becomes absolutely crucial because big things cannot be accomplished without the intervention of the monarch and this is something that Prime Minister Mishustin has found to be an obstacle time and time again. He's doing what he can, but when it comes to clashes with major interest groups, whether we're talking about the security services, whether we're talking about the defence industrial sector, whether we're talking about the big hydrocarbon powers like Rosneft and Gazprom, well, there he is in some ways in a very weak position unless he can get the boss's mandate. So, you know, time and time again, actually, what happens is policy becomes limited by one man's will, one man's energy, one man's imagination, one man's capacity to be bothered. And that's, I think, a particular problem at the moment. If we look specifically at the war, well, again, this has really highlighted, I think, the, the weaknesses of personalistic power in a time when government has become so much more complex than it was once upon a time. In this context, look, you have the limitations of expertise. What does Putin really know about war fighting? The answer is pretty much bugger all. He's dependent entirely on what people tell him. And, well, again, that comes to the second element, influence. That the monarch becomes dependent upon those people who actually get to shape his view of the world, of the challenges he faces, and of the resources he has at his disposal. If someone is telling you that NATO is coming to get you, you're going to respond. If someone is telling you that your armed forces are great, and that Ukraine is thoroughly interpenetrated by turncoats who've been hired by the FSB, and are ready to throw in their lot with an invader, you'll presumably believe them, unless you're smarter than Putin has demonstrated himself to be. Effort is the third particular limitation. You know, Putin is an, an ageing man, an increasingly self-indulgent man, I suspect. And to that end, it's also, you know, how much effort is he going to put out? Is he going to put himself in harm's way? We had this visit of his, we are told, 
to Mariupol. Some people are claiming that, in fact, that was a body double. Me, I'm moderately willing to believe it was him, but that they sort of sneaked him there the week before he was actually sort of notionally there. But the point is, we've seen, again, I'll come on to this in a moment, much less of Putin personally involving himself in, in what's going on. Whether we're talking about just simply being willing to sit through briefings or actually go out there and demonstrate his presence at the front. So, again, the other limitation, you, if you personalise power, well, by God, the figure in whom all power is vested better be willing to put himself out in the name of maintaining that. Putin does not. And the final element is, again, the, the symptom of the, the whole Eye of Sauron factor. That the degree to which, for example, the Russian armed forces may have looked great tramping through Red Square, but on the other hand, clearly were nowhere near at the level of competence and efficiency that that would suggest. Now, nor were they terrible. As I talked in previous podcasts, there are a whole variety of reasons why they underperformed catastrophically or gloriously in Ukraine, depending on whose, whose perspective you're approaching. But nonetheless, you know, it is clear that so much needed to be done that hadn't been done. And that Putin had on the one hand vested in himself the absolute control over the grand processes of budgetary uh, allocations and reform, but at the same time had not actually involved himself enough in, in what was going on. So, you know, he had instruments that were all already critically weakened even before he, he put them into a particularly sort of challenging position. So, look, personalistic regimes, like monarchies, can have particular strengths. They are able to focus resources very, very effectively. They are able to ensure that if the monarch intervenes, then a whole variety of internal constraints and problems, ranging from intra-elite disputes to just simply people not knowing quite who to obey, they can be swept away. But they put so much of a burden on that one individual. The individual's skills, strengths, knowledges, and also, and this is perhaps a crucial issue when it comes to Putin, self-awareness. A willing to acknowledge what you don't know, a willing to acknowledge what you can't do, and a willingness as a result to do something about that, whether it means actually giving genuine plenipotentiary powers to other people, or just simply not taking on challenges that you know are beyond you. And in all of these cases, Putin has, has fallen down, I would suggest. And as I say, a lot of that is precisely because of the context of the times. If Putin had been a czar back in the 17th century, maybe things would have been much better for him. But now the job of governance is just so complex, so wrapped around the capacity to manage bureaucracies, that I don't think Putin has really demonstrated the capacity to do that. And in some ways this leads to a second key challenge of the monarchical principle legitimacy. Now, if you are a hereditary monarch, well then, you know, in some ways life comes quite simple because you are there because God said so and because you were born to it. And I'll come on to succession in a moment. Of course, Putin isn't any one of those. So instead, well, how do you legitimise yourself? Well, Democratic systems, in a way, have an answer to that. It is precisely that, that you are in charge, at least now, because the population have put you there. And this is one of the reasons why, even through its authoritarian times, 
The Putin regime has always had an, an oddly legalistic approach and also continue to have elections. Rigged elections, of course, thoroughly stage-managed throughout, but nonetheless elections there, and I said, precisely to try and generate this legitimacy, that people would think that Putin had power because they themselves had given it to him. That, I would suggest, is going to become increasingly implausible. Yes, we're going to have, well, we're going to have regional elections coming up this autumn and then presidential elections next year. We know what the result will be. Putin's going to win. The thing is, I think increasingly Russians also know that result. We've seen already signs of backlash, not necessarily in terms of protests, that's a dangerous thing, but in terms of cynicism. So I think actually the capacity to legitimate through fake, admittedly, but democratic process is increasingly weak. What else? Well, the other key way in which this system legitimated itself was in, in technocratic manner. In other words, look, I'm the boss because I am the best at doing the things that need to be done. And for a long time that worked for Putin, in part because he was just simply damn lucky in that he came to power after the chaos of the 1990s when the system was already beginning to right itself and when there was an almost inevitable rebound that meant massive economic growth in the 2000s which manifested itself in just general people's quality of life as well as the you know, capacities for massive embezzlement by anyone within the system. Well that's great but the point is about technocratic legitimacy is that to a large extent it depends on today and tomorrow not yesterday. The days in which Putin could actually present himself simply as the basis of the man who dragged Russia out of the chaos of the 1990s and the misery of that period, well, look, that's long gone. That's ancient history now. The question is now, OK, well, you know, how do things look now? And things for most Russians look pretty bad now. Last year, real wages fell by 1%, but that frankly masks, I think, uh, a wider problem. You know, the, the overwhelming majority of Russian households now have no savings. There are some serious issues with everything from the housing market to access to personal credit. You know, all, all of these things are really impacting. Oh, God, I said impacting. All of these things are really having an impact on people's day-to-day -day lives their overall sense of optimism towards the future. And that is at the absolute heart of how technocratic legitimacy works. So I think the idea that, oh, well, Putin's the guy in charge because he's so good at it, that's also going to become tricky. Now, some regimes instead substitute an ideology, a sense of legitimacy through some overarching principle that you know you are the representative of the the future socialist and communist laboring masses or whatever else but of course putin doesn't really have an ideology in any kind of meaningful sense nationalism in and of itself is not an ideology because it's not transferable it's not something that people in other countries can take unto themselves instead what we're increasingly getting is what could be called legitimation through historical succession through that sense that Putin is important Putin has his place precisely because he fits into a grand national tradition one that actually spans the czars and the commissars and that in a way gives him a degree of of sanctity for want of a better word 
For me, always the best example of how Putin has tried to use history to create this kind of succession is to be found in the Russia Maya Historia, Russia My History, a uh, set of uh, museums or exhibitions, whatever you, you want to call them, which precisely, with a very, very clearly political dimension, try to create a kind of overarching narrative that says, you know, when Russia has been divided, then Russia has been weak. When Russia has been weak, then foreign enemies have taken full advantage of this to conquer or humble her, and that it is powerful monarchs, powerful single figures, who actually have been able to secure, protect, and expand Russia. So in this context, yes, of course, Putin is not a czar, but instead he fits into a certain historical procession. Vladimir the Great, incidentally of the Kievan Rus, but anyway, Vladimir the Great, who brought Christianity to the Rus. Ivan the Great, who gathered together the Russian lands, Peter the Great, who didn't just build a navy, but you know, made Russia a great northern European power. Catherine the Great, who also reached out to the south. Stalin, and now Putin. These are the diamonds alternating with less precious stones on the necklace of office. And it's worth noting that all but one of the historical predecessors are greats. Although I really don't think that Putin will go down in history as Vladimir the Great Jr. But the point is, again, this is all about a retrospective historic narrative. And it's fine and it's nice and it allows for, again, very pretty multimedia exhibitions. But how does it really legitimate you? So much of that depends on, and this is a sort of third broad area I would want to talk about, the monarch's relationship with the population. Now, the reason why the Tsars were able, often despite the fact that they may well have been you know, imbeciles or just simply self-indulgently obsessed with conquest or whatever else, but nonetheless managed to maintain their legitimacy so much, and let's not forget that there is also a strong revolutionary tradition in Russia, that in fact Russians are not just simply the downbeaten subjects that sometimes people present, but there's constant risings and, uh, and protests. But anyway, the reason why czars were able to keep their thrones, keep their relevance, keep their grip on not just the direct control of the population, but in some ways the loyalties and the imaginations of the population was precisely because they still managed to maintain a sense of connectivity. To a large extent, that was because of religion. Now, Putin doesn't necessarily have that, especially because we've got to note the extent to which Russia is indeed a multi-confessional state. Sure, Russian Orthodoxy may be the single core religion, but you know it is also a very Muslim, etc. nation. So there's a there's a limit to how far, even if he wanted to, he could use that. And so instead, we saw all the other varieties of ways in which Putin tried to generate some kind of, frankly, pretty ersatz connection with his own people. Things like the, the direct line phone in, you know, if you get through, Putin will fix your problems. Or all of his kind of personal visits to the regions, again, very, very carefully stage managed. There's a problem. The monarch appears, he browbeats the, the foolish boyars who hadn't really appreciated the situation, and suddenly money and favour and grace cascade from the heavens and all is well. Now, direct line is begin, beginning to become old hat, and, and it's one thing a year anyway. 
Putin doesn't seem to be able to be willing to drag himself out for many personal visits to the regions, and certainly not the sort where he can indulge in the kind of faux vox pop which is absolutely necessary for these kind of connections. It just tends to be a sort of a photo opportunity with the local governor, a little drive around, maybe a couple of, again, very, very carefully staged managed meetings, and that's that. So much of this depends, after all, on his willingness to put himself at risk. There is a security dimension, especially in these days. His stamina and his just will to be bothered to do this. How far do you actually become accustomed to, to sitting on a throne of bayonets and are perfectly happy to rely on the fact that at the moment the security apparatus is there to keep you in power? Instead, just as the church became the Tsar's personal representative, in effect, in the towns and the villages, preaching obedience from the pulpit, well, now it's not so much the church, it's not even, I would suggest, the mayors and the governors and the presidential plenipotentiaries. It's the television. People like Dmitry Kisilyov and the execrable Salavyov, all of these people are in effect not just propagandists, they are priests of the new cult of Putin. This is both aesthetically depressing, but also potentially problematic. First of all, because it raises questions about your actual level of control of the church. Now, when I say church again, I'm talking about the propagandist church, not the Russian Orthodox Church, which frankly is already, to my point of view, pretty much bought and paid for. Little more than just simply an extension of the state. And as I suggested in other times, really, we, we should be calling it Rosbog, the federal state unitary entity god, just like all the other sort of grand state-controlled corporations. No, instead it's about making sure that the, the narrative is the right kind of narrative and frankly it's clear that the Kremlin puts, or particularly the presidential administration, puts a lot of effort into this. We have the so-called Chomniki, these uh, you know, regular secret uh, notes that are sent out to basically make sure that everyone is giving the right line out. We have obviously the role of Dmitry Peskov, but also within the presidential administration... Alexei Gromov, who is first deputy head of the presidential administration, who clearly has the overall remit to, to, to manage the media from, from this kind of perspective. So a lot of effort goes into it. And yes, obviously, the, the, the top line outputs of all the propagandists fit whatever is the Kremlin's needs at the moment. In some cases, being deliberately over extreme, precisely to allow someone like Peskov to urbanely row back, to make it look as if the Kremlin is actually on the moderate side of the equation. All very theatrical, all very carefully stage managed. But there is a limit to how far you can actually stage manage them, particularly when there is meant to be at least the appearance of some kind of discussion and debate. And we've seen this. It's one thing when you actually have someone like Salavyov giving his monologues. But when you then now have the, these um, very combative uh, talk show, effectively, format approach, even though it's much more Jerry Springer than Newsnight, but even there we're beginning to actually see more often, I would suggest, dissenting perspectives emerging. People are actually saying critical things about whether or not you know, the war is unwinnable or that you know, more soldiers are going to have to be sent to the front or whatever else. So I think there is a constant challenge of controlling this secular liturgy. 
Perhaps most important, though, is the issue of impact. Increasingly, people are turning to the Internet, and even if certain channels are being blocked, they're using VPNs to still access them. Or just more simply, they're just turning their TVs off, or they're focusing on escapism rather than propaganda. At the end of 2021, in other words, before the invasion, 86% of Russian respondents in surveys said they watched state television, for example. 86%. By mid-2022, so really not that long after, that figure had plummeted to 65%. This is a lot of people who you know, increasingly, even if they have no real alternatives, just don't want to see what's on state television now that state television is increasingly becoming just simply a strident and obvious engine of propaganda. In January 2023, in a different survey, 57% of people said that they watched television daily. Now, 57% is, again, there's actually a whole variety of figures, but that is definitely down, quite substantially down on previous figures. And 15% said they didn't watch television at all. And the fascinating thing is this. Netflix is now officially not accessible in Russia. But again, in practice, a lot of people use VPNs to get around the controls. And I should say this is because of Netflix rather than because of the Kremlin. And Netflix is at present watched more than, for example, the flagship 60 Minutes daily propaganda program that is put out on on state television. You know, people are much more interested in just entertainment than they are in this new toxic nationalistic catechism. Because this is the problem. When it comes down to it, a real church can damn you to hell. Russian TV, well, the best they can do is bore you to death. So there is a limit to which actually using television as an alternative to having to developing some kind of a personal relationship between the monarch and his subjects really can work. And the final challenge with this sort of increasing monarchicalization, and no, I know that's not a word, um, of, of the Putin system is, of course, about the regularization of succession. You know, Charles III was, was, is, is king because he was the oldest son of Queen Elizabeth II. And likewise, his eldest son, William, is now the Prince of Wales and the heir to the throne. That's all pretty straightforward. You can't have that with a system which does not have a, a, a clear hereditary principle. In theory, Putin could identify a, a political heir, but he's clearly not willing to do that, understandably for a variety of reasons. Firstly, that that actually brings the question of the end of his reign all the much closer and makes it more real. Secondly, that gives someone a particular incentive to begin to actually want to see his reign end. So instead, we have a constitutional situation now in which he could stay in power until 2036, God help us all, and the attempt to pretend that this is not an issue. Well, It's kind of not an issue, because certainly at the moment there is no vacancy. But it means that there is always a potential problem. When health, mortality or political viability begin to create a challenge for the status quo. No one can openly campaign to become successor, of course. But what we can expect, though, is 
jockeying for power any time the system looks weak, which is arguably precisely the moment when the system is most vulnerable to the negative impacts of that jockeying for power. And that will inevitably happen if the war goes badly, if Putin begins to, to look more frail or whatever else. You know, we can expect people quietly to begin to, to make their case. Arguably, we've already had that a few cases beforehand, before the war, when everything became a lot more tricky and dangerous to, to, to negotiate. When we had people like Shoigu, like Mishustin, but also like, for example, Rostek head Chemezov, beginning to make the kind of wide speculative policy discussions which looked as if they were saying, I'm not just good at my current job, I could actually have a handle on the challenges facing Russia in the future. As I said, those were very tentative, but I would suggest not tentative enough to go unnoticed. Uh, the moment, yes, you know, there is clearly a situation in which no one's willing to stick their head above the parapet, and arguably, you know, who would want to be president of Russia in the current situation? But we can expect that to happen, and that will be inevitably a destabilizing force. So by abandoning earlier, more complex, more subtle, and I would suggest more clever ways of running and legitimizing his system, by letting it become increasingly a secular neo-monarchy, I would suggest that Putin has actually weakened his own situation at the expense of laziness, ego, and just simply habit. But on the other hand, he can't, I think, make that last step. In 2016, Zhirinovsky, always Zhirinovsky of blessed memory, said that Putin should be crowned czar. And it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but a bit not tongue-in-cheek. Subsequently, Konstantin Malofeyev, the orthodox uh, oligarch, the man behind the monarchical nationalist Sagrad media empire, also said something of the sort. Now, of course, there is actually a notional heir to the Russian throne. Georgi Romanov, great-grandson of Grand Duke Kirill, cousin to Nicholas II, certainly claims to be the, the sovereign heir to the throne. Uh, but although there's a certain sort of flirtation there there was in the past with people like, like Malofeyev, there clearly is no real enthusiasm to see the return of the Tsar. Only 3% of Russians actually want to return to the feudal days of old Tsarism. And even Putin, frankly, visibly balked when, for example, Zhirinovsky made that particular claim. However, trashy Putin's tastes may have been in, in other ways. The idea of, of putting a crown on his head clearly does, does not at the moment uh, seem to appeal. Though even here, maybe I can be cynical. After all, uh, the uh, coronation prayer requires the, uh, the new monarch to, to vow to accomplish all that is to the profit of the people committed to my charge. And quite frankly, if one looks at the plight of ordinary Russians today, one could argue that uh, that's not something that he could carry through, let alone when the coronation oath includes a vow to rule with justice and fairness. Perhaps he just felt that was a little bit too on the nose and a little bit too much to promise. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. 
But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So as promised, let me in the second half go for a quick high-speed canter through some of the more salient and more striking moments of the last week or so. And clearly I have to start with the issue of drones. The drones that either, well in, in one case, may or may not have actually hit the dome of the Senate building in the Kremlin, or else was destroyed just off it. But anyway, two drones that certainly reached Kremlin airspace. Lots of debate, of course, on who's behind it or whatever. We don't really know. My guess would be it was indeed the Ukrainians, not as some kind of assassination attempt on Putin. That's nonsense. But rather just simply as a political and symbolic act in the run-up to the 9th of May Victory Day celebrations that we can reach out and even touch the very centre, the most fortified heart of Putin's state. I think that's powerful symbolism and, frankly, reason enough to launch such a long-range attack. I don't know quite how it was done, whether it was UJ-22 drones fired from Ukrainian territory or something else. To be honest, I think a lot of the details are going to take a long time to, to come out. And I've sort of talked about this both in The Spectator and in today's Sunday Times. I'll leave links in the, the programme notes. And yes, the Sunday Times piece is behind a paywall. I know for some people that's a real issue, but newspapers need to make their money somehow. So there you go. But anyway, the point is that for me, the context I want to put that in is a much wider, what seems to be to me, an escalating campaign orchestrated probably by Ukraine, possibly with the support of some local anti-government resistance groups, though I'm still a bit sceptical about a lot of these claims. But anyway, essentially an attempt to, as Winston Churchill put it to his own special operations executive, the so-called Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, in World War Two. You know, he, he, he set then the task of setting Europe ablaze. Well, now it seems to be an attempt to set Russia ablaze with everything from arson attacks on draft boards through to derailing of, of trains. And then most recently, we then had the bomb attack on Zakhar Prilepin, the nationalist author and militia commander, um, formerly an Amon riot policeman, then, as I said, an author, moved to fight in the Donbass and still today, and was seriously injured when a bomb blew up his car, also killing the driver. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, put all these together, and a couple of things, I think, become pretty interestingly evident. First of all, it's precisely that there does seem to be an escalating campaign by the Ukrainians to make the war actually also very real, inside Russia itself. I mean, at the moment, if you're an ordinary Russian, yes, your quality of life is getting worse, but it's getting worse in an you know, incremental way. It's not as if something bang is just suddenly happening. And you may well have been touched by fears about the, the mobilization campaigns for yourself, for you know, a male friend or relative or whatever, but 
to a large extent, I suspect that most Russians are still able to just keep their heads down. I mean, after all, the evidence suggests that about a quarter of Russians are supportive of the war, about a quarter are actively opposed, and a half, in my opinion, are just trying to not have an opinion at all. Because if you have an opinion, then you might actually have to do something about it. Well, I think this is an attempt by, by Kiev to make sure that that, that half begin to realise that the war is not just something that is happening elsewhere or on your television screen, that other people are having to fight and it's maybe all terrible, but it doesn't really matter to you. Well, yes, it matters to you. So I think that's, that's what the, the goal is. The interesting thing is actually in terms of, of methodology. We are not, it seems, on the whole, seeing Ukrainian agents going in and carrying out the attacks, though there clearly was this claim with the killing of Daria Dugina, the daughter of pretty barking mad nationalist philosopher Alexander Dugin. Generally speaking, there was this fascinating research by Mediazona that was then covered by Medusa, and again I'll, I'll leave a link in the program notes, that suggests that, for example, a lot of these sort of lower level attacks, the arson attacks, actually were from pensioners and the like who had been duped or blackmailed into carrying them out, and done so over the phone or over internet. Likewise, the killing of the nationalist mill blogger and fighter Vladlen Tatarsky by a bomb that was brought in by a sort of would-be journalist, Daria Trepova, well, again, she doesn't seem to have realised actually what was in the, the bust that she presented to Tatarsky. So another dupe, it seems. I mean, actually, what we're seeing is the Ukrainians demonstrating imagination to equal ruthlessness seemed increasingly be actually launching a terrorist campaign or and take away the uh, value judgment with the word terrorist i'm talking about sort of terrorist style shall we say sabotage campaign by proxy by forcing or inducing or in some cases presumably encouraging and supporting russians to carry out these attacks it really is i think a demonstration in that respect of the the degree to which actually the Ukrainians are not just out fighting the Russians, but out thinking the Russians very effectively. So we'll just have to see how this plays out, and particularly in the run-up and around the Victory Day celebrations. You know, we've had the drones, we've had the Prilipin bombing. Are we going to see more happening? Speaking of Victory Day, yes, it's it's going to go ahead. It has to, after all. Putin couldn't, even with the drones attacking, Putin couldn't cancel it. Although it's been cancelled in, in Victory Day celebrations in a lot of towns and cities on the grounds of security. But in Moscow, it was bad enough when it looked as if Covid was going to force the cancellation of the parade. But now to not go ahead with a parade would be a shocking and very public admission of impotence. So instead, one's going to happen. Interestingly, though, we haven't yet had, for example, the full run-through of the forces and the units that, we, that will be marching, which usually by now, you know, we, we'd have had already long in advance. Probably many of them are going to be conscripts just simply because so many of the professional soldiers are in, involved in the front. But what really struck me is we do actually have apparently figures. It's going to be 10,000 people and 125 vehicles. Now that's 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 a big enough parade, except I will I look back at past years. In 2020, 14,000. 2021, 12,000. 2022, 11,000, and now 10,000. 
I mean, this is a, a steady shrinkage of the parade. And given that Victory Day is the high holy day of Putin's militaristic notions of Russian's great power status, it's meant to be the celebration that, that can and does bring together every Russian, not just in celebration of past glories, but in that sense that Russians are, by definition, a glorious and, most importantly, militarily successful nation. I mean, this, this diminution, again, I think is in some ways a, a symbol and a symptom of the wider shrinkage of Putin's claims and the credibility of his claims to Russia as a great power. And finally, let's talk about good old, well, old but not good, Yevgeny Prigozhin the entrepreneur behind the Wagner organization. We've had another one of his deeply profane and splenetic videos. Shoigu Gerasimov, where is my fucking ammunition? Who has now, I mean, having originally said that unless he was given proper support and above all proper ammunition, Wagner's forces would be pulling out of Bakhmut on the 10th of May, in other words, just out after Victory Day. Now he's saying that they will actually be, be pulling back and, and giving a whole variety of, of, sort of figures, he claims, that show that the Ministry of Defence is deliberately and actively starving him of ammunition and, as a result, leading to the needless deaths of so many of his fighters. Well, look, I mean, it is possible that the Ministry of Defence is deliberately starving Wagner of ammunition, but on the whole, I think this actually reflects an overall process of ammunition rationing. Shells are indeed running short. Both sides are expending them at a vastly greater rate than they can acquire them. With the impending Ukrainian counter-offensive, obviously the Russian military wants to make sure it has proper ammunition stocks to hand. And that means a general scaling down of ammunition, all use, all across the front line. It's more that I think Wagner had accustomed itself for quite some time to having privileged access to, to ammunition and fire support, which is now being withdrawn. And it's also, I think, an element of Prigozhin, both feeling that uh, he is under pressure, feeling that he is being sidelined, and that, like any condottiere or mercenary commander, his army is his crucial economic asset in this context. And as Wagner is being bled and again being bled at a far, far greater rate than it can possibly resupply itself, especially now that it's been denied the opportunity to recruit from the prison camp system, well, I think he sees the writing on the wall. And I think in some ways this is an attempt to try and give a good kicking to Shoigu, while Shoigu may be vulnerable because of the embarrassment of the drones that penetrated all the air defence systems around Moscow, but also to in some ways justify why Wagner is no longer going to be a, a key player. I'm not entirely convinced that actually Wagner will or can withdraw from Bakhmut. I mean, first of all, in strategic terms, Wagner depends on the Ministry of Defence for transport. And unless they're all going to just start walking home, then it's hard to see what could happen. But more to the point, I think this would be considered by the Kremlin as an act of betrayal. And remember, Prigozhin is a man whose business empire, which extends far, far beyond Wagner, is almost entirely dependent upon the favour, indulgence and sweetheart contracts provided by the Kremlin. For him to actually try and pull troops out, I think, would, would probably lead to a very rapid... Uh, reversal of that process 
And also remember, this is a man who has many, many enemies who would be delighted to put the boot in, if not the knife, as soon as they felt that Prigozhin had no longer had any kind of protected status. And I think Prigozhin must know that. Part of his anger, I suspect, is precisely impotence. The fact that he cannot force the Ministry of Defence to give him the support he wants, that Wagner is is evaporating in the crucible of Bakhmut, and that all he has is shouting on social media, which has already become something of a TikTok meme, by the way. But anyway, all he has is that to try and get through to the boss. So we may see some retraction. We may see him saying that, oh, well, in answer to my complaints, now I've been promised that we'll get proper support and so he can climb down. We'll have to wait and see. But the point is that we shouldn't assume that this is going to dramatically change the nature of the war. I mean, Kadyrov of of Chechnya has already asked that his uh, Akhmat special forces be allowed to take the place of Wagner. Well, I can't help but wonder if Kadyrov would actually have asked that if he genuinely thought Wagner would move. Because on the whole, he seems very, very protective of his own boys. So one way or the other, it could well be that the Ministry of Defence will in effect nationalise Wagner, take them into its own formations like Patriot, Schitt and Redut. But one way or the other, I can't help but suspect that, although he is something of a survivor, nonetheless I think Prigozhin's day in the sun may well be drawing to an end, and I don't think any of us would, would probably regret that. Obviously, there's a lot more I could talk about, but I think I'll stop it there and wish you all, even those rebellious American colonials, a very happy Coronation Weekend. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>